As we gather here on Resurrection Sunday, we are finding ourselves in Mark, as we have been uh, for the last almost year and a half. We're coming to the end of Mark's Gospel. We're in Mark chapter 15, and that's going to be verses 16 through 32. If you don't have a Bible, for some of you there may be a Bible nearby on the ground, a blue one, that you can find this passage on page 852 of that Bible, page 852. The big numbers are the chapters, the little numbers are the verses. Mark chapter 15, starting in verse 16. And the soldiers led him away inside the palace, that is the governor's headquarters. And they called together the whole battalion, and they clothed him in a purple cloak. And twisting together a crown of thorns, they put it on him. And they began to salute him, Hail, King of the Jews! And they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in homage to him. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the purple cloak and put his own clothes on him, and they led him out to crucify him. And they compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who was coming in from the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. And they brought him to the place called Golgotha, which means place of a skull. And they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. And they crucified him, divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. And it was the third hour when they crucified him. And the inscription of the charge against him read, The King of the Jews. And with him they crucified two robbers, one on his right and one on his left. And those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful to gather as a family, as your body. To worship the risen son. Thank you, Jesus, for not staying dead in the grave. Thank you, Father, for sending your son so that we may be brought back to you. We are grateful for this good news. We are grateful that we have hope this morning because the tomb is empty. We are grateful that the work is finished. Now, Father, we pray that as we look at this text, we would be reminded of what has been done for us in Christ. We pray that we would be sharpened as members of his body. We pray that we'd be sanctified through hearing your word, that we'd pursue holiness. We pray that we would be reminded of the grace that has been provided, that this salvation that we have is not through anything that we have done, but it's through Christ's work. And God, we pray for 
the thousands of churches around the state, around our country, around the world that are proclaiming this good news this morning. We thank you that we are not the only ones. We pray in particular for Linworth Baptist Church this morning. God, we thank you for their faithfulness to proclaim the gospel. Thank you for Pastor Brent Miller for standing on truth. We pray that you would bless them this morning as they look at the empty tomb. And now, help me speak clearly. Lord, I have plenty of notes here, but they mean nothing apart from your spirit working in us. So please, help me speak clearly and prepare all of us to receive what your word says. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Adoption is a beautiful thing. Some of you have considered adoption. Some of you maybe even have partaken in it. And I, I have a friend who was adopted. And so adoption is a wonderful thing. John Piper, in talking about adoption, he lists eight different similarities. I'm not going to go through all eight, but there are several similarities between adoption and the gospel. Some of them that he lists out are that adoption is costly, that it involves the legal status of a child, that there's personal change not only with the child but also with the parents as this, these families come together, that it is seriously planned, it's not entered into lightly, and that it's often pulling the child out of a very bad situation. So this morning when we talk about the empty tomb, what in the world does adoption have to do with Resurrection Sunday? Well, I'll put it to you this way. This is the kind of the sentence to hang your hat on as we march through this text this morning. Is that because King Jesus was crucified, we may be brought to God. Because King Jesus was crucified, we may be brought to God. So, as I said, we've been in Mark's gospel. And just as a refresher, Mark's gospel was written to Christians in Rome around the 50s or 60s A.D., and it was written by a man named John Mark. And he received much of his material that he's working with here from the Apostle Peter. And the theme that we've consistently gone back to, which is very similar to the sentence that I just shared with you, is that it's God restoring his wayward people. God restoring his wayward people. And so this day where Jesus is being crucified has been a day that he has mentioned to his disciples several times. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. But this day has massive significance. This day is the apex of Jesus' earthly ministry. And he's been preparing his disciples for this. And as we look at the text, there are four things that I want us to see. You can see them in your bulletin. But four things that I want us to spend some time considering. And that's the fact that Jesus is mocked, Jesus is helped, Jesus is crucified, and the people respond. Jesus is mocked, Jesus is helped, Jesus is crucified, and the people respond. So jumping into that first one where we see Jesus being mocked, we have to recognize that this passage doesn't just exist in isolation. We have to look just a little bit previously. Jesus is coming off of being scourged. This is the flogging, so to speak, and it's a, it's a horrific ordeal. It's a very violent experience, but it's what the Romans would do prior to crucifying somebody. 
so that the person who's crucified wouldn't last as long on the cross because they don't want to monitor that for days and days on end. So the flogging or the scourging ends up expediting the death process. One source said that Roman flogging or scourging was a horrifically cruel punishment. Those condemned to it were tied to a post and beaten with a leather whip that was interwoven with pieces of bone and metal, which tore through skin and tissue, often exposing bones and intestines. In many cases, the flogging itself was fatal. So Jesus had just experienced this flogging, this scourging. And now, after being publicly scourged, the soldiers take him inside the palace or the governor's headquarters where Pilate is staying, take him inside because his suffering's not yet finished. There's more. They have more to pile on. And so they call together the whole battalion, which the initial reading of that, you might think that's, okay, it might be a handful of soldiers. Sources say that a battalion at full strength was 600 men. And so let's say this isn't the full battalion, just hypothetically, maybe it's around 200 men. But regardless, when it says it calls together the whole battalion, especially considering that it's around Passover, this is likely closer to 600 men that are brought in to witness Jesus get mocked now after he's been publicly beaten. And so Jesus, as we've read, is being crucified because of his claim to be king. Because of his claim to be king of the Jews. The religious authorities asked if he was the Messiah, the Messiah being king of the Jews, and he affirmed it. Then the secular authorities, the Roman courts, ask him, are you in fact king of the Jews? He affirms it. And so now they bring the whole battalion in, the Roman battalion, and they all have the understanding that this guy is being, he's about to be crucified. He's already been beaten, but he's about to be crucified because he thinks that he is king of the Jews. And so what they do is they, their mockery begins. They get a purple robe, purple cloak, and purple in that day was a difficult color to make, and so it was very expensive. So oftentimes it signified royalty. And so they grab a purple cloak. They put it on him. They say, hey, you're a king. You should have royal clothing. Let's put a purple cloak on him. So they put that on, and then they twist together a crown. Every king should have a crown. So they twist together this crown of thorns. They placed it on his head, and it obviously would have been very painful to wear, but it also was a parody. They're making a joke of the emperor's laurel crown. So they're saying, hey, the emperor wears a laurel crown? Man, this king of the Jews, you should have a crown as well. Let's get you one. It's not going to be a laurel one, but we'll get you a crown. And they begin to say, Hail, King of the Jews, which was, again, a mockery because what uh, those who were under Caesar's rule would say when he came by was, Hail, Caesar. Our allegiance is to you, Caesar. Hail, Caesar. And now all these hundreds of men come in. They put a cloak on him, give him a crown, and they begin to say, Hail, King of the Jews. Hail, King of the Jews. They don't stop there. They give him his scepter. Every king should have a scepter. So they grab a reed, and before giving it to him, they strike his head with it on that crown of thorns. Then they spit on him, and they kneel down and pay homage to him. All of this is to make a mockery of the king. When it comes to the purple cloak, when it comes to the crown, when it comes to the saluting, when it comes to the kneeling, this is all to make a mockery 
of King Jesus. But it's not without its purpose. As we look at the Gospels, especially the crucifixion, especially what's happening in these verses, we see that these things needed to happen. Because not only because of what Jesus is doing for his people, but also to fulfill promises from the Old Testament to show and signify that Jesus is, in fact, the Messiah that was promised to God's people. And so we see in Isaiah 50, verse 6, where the prophet is talking about the Messiah, it says, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Just read about how they spat on him, they struck him. We see this taking place in Jesus' life. But when they're finished humiliating him, because eventually it has to come to an end, eventually, okay, we've, we've had our fun. We actually have to go out and crucify this guy. So when it comes to an end, they remove his royal cloak, his purple cloak. They put his own clothes on him, and then they begin to lead him out to be crucified. Now, we have to hit pause on the story right here, because right there, as they remove the royal cloak that he had and put his own clothes on him and lead him to be crucified, right there, we see a micro picture of the gospel. Because Jesus himself is the one who removed his royal status, not these soldiers. They may have taken a purple cloak off of him, but he had stripped himself of his royal and divine status before that. Jesus himself had agreed to suffer and die in place of his people. Philippians 2 talks about how Christ Jesus, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. It's Jesus who takes on the form of a servant. It's Jesus who humbles himself. And so these soldiers might be mocking him. These soldiers might be removing a royal cloak that they put on him. But that's only, that's only what we see right here. These things of Jesus humbling himself, these things of Jesus taking away all of his privileges as the Son of God had happened far before. It's the only reason they can do any of this to him. No one humbles Jesus but himself. No one empties Jesus but himself. However, Jesus does not stay emptied. He may have removed his royal privileges, privileges temporarily, or there is a day where he's going to take them back up. Until then, <clears throat> we see that he's mocked, he's beaten, and he's crucified for his people. And the thing that we need to understand just in this far into the story is that Jesus' claim to be king has brought him severe suffering. Jesus' claim to be king has brought him severe suffering and if you are a follower of Jesus this morning and you claim Christ if you are a follower of Jesus that means that you have claimed that Christ is king and if you do that consistently there is a price to pay he tells us Jesus tells us to count the cost there is a cost to be paid enemies of Christ those who are not believers will revile you 
say things about you that aren't true. But that's okay. That's all right. 80 years of reviling, let's say it's 80 years. That's probably on the, the far end. If you are a follower of Jesus, let's say you have 80 years of nothing but reviling. That's so insignificant. 10 billion years from now. We are living for eternity. We're not living for 80 years. I, uh, during COVID, I became our designated grocery shopper. And so I began to become fairly acclimated with Aldi. And Aldi, for those wondering, is the greatest grocery store to shop at. <laughs> There's not even a, a debate. And the reason, I will tell you the reason why, because it is easily streamlined. You walk right in, the aisles are pretty self-explanatory, and if you need to get peanuts or peanut butter, there's only one or two options to choose from, which is just a gift from God. And what I found is that as I would do this grocery shopping, I would make some impulse purchases. And so I would find myself hungry. And as soon as you enter Aldi, the one right down here off of State Street, one of the first things after going through the fruit and vegetable section on the left, there are packages of peanuts. $1.99. <laughs> Great purchase for honey roasted peanuts. It would be very silly if I purchased that. I mean, I did, did purchase multiple times. But it would be very silly if I took that container and went to the cashier and said, hey, look, I'm a big fan of honey roasted peanuts. And I'm pretty, pretty aware of how many peanuts should be in here. This container is missing one. I'm not getting everything that I paid for. I need one more peanut to make this a full container. They would look at me like I'm crazy. They'd say, how many thousands of peanuts are in that container? There's, you're going to complain about one? And not in a perfect way, but in a similar way, that 80 years, if we're fortunate enough to have, in light of eternity, it's like one peanut in an entire container of honey roasted peanuts. Next time you walk through the grocery store, think of that when you see the peanuts. <laughs> Our life is one of those peanuts. If we're reviled for 80 years, that's okay. Let's follow Christ faithfully. Let's acknowledge and claim him as king. Jesus himself said in Matthew on the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you, when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For those 10 billion, 20 trillion years down the road, your reward is great. Rejoice and be glad if you suffer proclaiming Christ as king. But if you reject Christ as king, if you're not a follower of Jesus this morning, if you wouldn't claim to be a Christian, Maybe you're not against Christ like we mentioned last week. You're friendly to the idea of him, but you're not submitting to him as king. There is a greater price to pay than the reviling that you would pay if you did claim him as king. Because God is perfectly holy and he's perfectly just and he's too good to overlook sin. We long for justice. When you see people take the streets over justice. The reason we long for that is because we're made in the image of God and God is perfectly just. And if God were to just let our sin go unjudged, unaddressed, he would not be perfectly just. He would not be good. 
And so if you claim Christ as king, then Christ on the cross has paid for your sin. But if you refuse to claim Christ as king, then there is a day coming where you yourself will have to pay for that sin. This king, he is coming back. Whatever king you're submitting to, whatever false king, if it's not Christ, then it's a false king. That false king cannot protect you against the true king. He is returning. He came first as a lamb, but he's coming again as a lion. Coming again to destroy his enemies. Sin being public enemy number one. And if sin has not been paid for, when he returns, you will be paying for it. Call on Christ. Trust him to pay for your sin. So today in this passage, we see Jesus is mocked. However, when he returns, we're promised that every knee will bow. and Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That day is coming. So the question for us is, will your knee bow willingly today? Will your knee bow to Christ's kingship willingly today? Or will you bow forcibly when he returns? Will your knee bow willingly today or forcibly when Christ returns? And Christian, question for us, if you are a Christian, is does your knee bow only when it's easy? Or also when it's difficult, also when it's costly, also when it's painful or when it's hard. When you're mocked, when you're misrepresented, when you're slandered, does your knee bow to Christ? Or do you want to get that zinger in to the person who says something negative to you or slanders you or misrepresents you? When there's money involved, is are you submitting to Christ as king when it comes to your job? When it comes to the way you do your taxes, maybe you have a great promotion where if you just manipulated the truth a little bit, you could really get some, a great opportunity over here. Is Christ, are you bowing your knee to Christ even here? When you've had a stressful day or week, whether that's job, kids, or school, are you still bowing the knee to Christ? When a loved one betrays you, are you still bowing your knee to Christ? We need help in this. It's not easy. Jesus himself also needed help. And we go to our second point now where Jesus is helped. So now that Jesus has been mocked, now Jesus has been beaten, he's led to be crucified. Now the crucifixion process, we haven't gone over this because we haven't gotten to this point in the text, but the crucifixion process was also a horrific process. I'm not going to get into all the details, but if you want to look it up, it would be a fun Google project for you to look up the crucifixion process and how that goes. But it was Rome's worst form of punishment. It was known for being their most excruciating form of punishment. And in fact, that word excruciating, we get that word from the same root word as crucifixion. Excruciating crucifixion because of how violent this was. Now, it was reserved only for high crimes, and it actually couldn't even be inflicted upon a Roman citizen. It was that bad. So they said, we, we're going to come up with this really bad way of putting someone to death, but it's so bad, we can't even think of something that would be so bad for us to put one of our own citizens through it. And so it was only non-Romans who would ever receive crucifixion. And so what they would do is after beating and flogging this person, 
they would have the individual who's going to be crucified carry the horizontal beam that he'd be crucified on. The vertical beam was already there in place, but they would have him carry this large horizontal beam on his back up to the place where he would die. Now Jesus, being beaten, being mocked, he's exhausted. He's spent. He's been up arguably the whole night because when they went to the Garden of Gethsemane, he was then captured and he had trials throughout the night. So Jesus hasn't gotten much sleep and he's been physically beaten and so he can't even carry this cross anymore. And so they compel a passerby, verse 21. They compelled a passerby, Simon of Cyrene, who's coming in the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to carry his cross. Jesus couldn't carry it. He was too physically beaten. He was so beaten and so spent that he needed some help. Maybe some of you can relate. Being beaten and spent, maybe not physically, maybe emotionally, maybe spiritually. We need one another. We need one another to help carry our cross. Now this Simon, this father of Alexander and Rufus, it's interesting to note that, the, that Alexander there, he's not mentioned throughout the rest of the New Testament, but Rufus is. Rufus is mentioned in Romans 16. And he's, as he's mentioned in that, that's Romans 16, verse 13, if you want to look that up. But as he's mentioned in that, it sounds like Rufus is a believer. And so already, right here, Jesus, before he's ever even crucified, is making a massive impact in the life of those around him. Rufus is impacted for eternity because his father was asked to help carry Jesus' cross. Makes you wonder the impact that our suffering has on others. Jesus' suffering led to Simon arguably embracing Christ, at the very least his son Rufus. And so, as they're carrying this up, we see Jesus being offered some relief. If you look at verse 23, verse 23, and they offered him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. So this wine mixed with myrrh, this was likely a uh, pain reliever. And Jesus doesn't take it for at least a couple of reasons. One, he earlier in Mark 14, when he instituted the Lord's Supper, said he would not partake. He would not drink uh, of the fruit of the vine again until the kingdom was established. But then also, Jesus doesn't want any numbing, anything to relieve the pain of sin that he is bearing for his people. He wouldn't permit himself to avoid feeling any of sin's painful effects. He bore it, and he bore it in full. Before the crucifixion took place, Jesus was already in excruciating pain, so much so that onlookers offered him wine mixed with myrrh. This guy's getting ready to go die. Let's ease his pain just a little bit. Let's give him some of the strength, but he doesn't take it. And even despite that excruciating pain, he remains faithful. And part of Jesus' faithfulness, it's important for us to see this, part of Jesus' faithfulness included someone else helping carry his cross. Jesus is perfectly righteous. Whether Simon of Cyrene would have been there or not, he would have remained perfectly righteous. However, it's important for us to see that even Jesus got some assistance in carrying his cross. Mark tells us, if anyone would come after me, this is Jesus speaking, Mark 8, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up 
his cross and follow me. Does not mean that you need to carry that cross alone. You weren't designed to. You weren't made to carry it alone. Don't be so arrogant to think that you can carry it alone. We need one another. We've been adopted into the body of Christ. You've been adopted into the body of Christ and you're in isolation and you're like a cut off hand living in the corner of the room when the rest of the body is over here. Eventually that hand is going to be what withers, not the body. We're adopted into the body of Christ. We're adopted into the family of God. We have brothers and sisters in Christ. We must walk together. That's what it looks like to be a Christian. That's what it looks like to be part of the family of God, the body of Christ. If Jesus needed help carrying his cross, then for goodness sakes, we do too. Let's not walk in isolation. We're designed to walk together. We're made in God's image. God being for all eternity in triune community, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We are meant to be in community with one another. We need one another consistently. Hebrews 10 calls us to gather together. It's not just a command, but it's also for our good. It's what it means to be followers of Christ. Studies have shown that we are more connected than ever before and yet more lonely than ever before. Don't think that your connection over a social media platform or over email or texting is sufficient community. It's not. We need one another. We must help one another die to ourselves. We're called to pick up our cross. We're called to die to ourselves. We need one another to help die to ourselves. Simon of Cyrene helped Jesus in his death. He helps Jesus die. And so now we see how that takes place in that third point where Jesus is crucified. So now the time comes for Jesus' crucifixion. This is what he's been alluding to throughout Mark's gospel. His disciples didn't want to believe it. They had a different understanding of what it means to be Messiah. They thought, all right, he's going to take back Jerusalem, and Rome's going to be kicked out, and this is going to be a political Messiah, and our kingdom's going to be established here. And so for that reason, Jesus did not reveal his identity until later in the gospel because they all had a false idea of what it means to be Messiah. And so now Jesus publicly we already talked about he was tried by the religious leaders and by the secular leaders, and in both instances, he claims to be the Messiah. And so now, it's displayed. On the cross, there's a sign nailed, and it says, King of the Jews. And so his identity is on display for everyone to see. The, the sign there is meant to mock him. It's meant to show why he's being crucified, but it's also in mockery. But... The ironic thing is that he really is, in fact, king of the Jews. He is the Messiah. And we see that as he is being crucified, as this king of the Jews is being crucified, promises continue to be fulfilled. Old Testament promises about the king of the Jews continue to be fulfilled. In verse 24, we read that they crucified him and divided his garments among them, casting lots for them to decide what each should take. Psalm 22 was written about a thousand years prior to this event taking place. I'm going to read portions of it. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But this psalm, this psalm, as I read these portions, think about how accurate 
King David, because he's the one who wrote Psalm 22, how accurate he was in depicting the coming Messiah's crucifixion. This is Psalm 22, where we read, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. This was written nearly a thousand years before Jesus' crucifixion. We see how accurate the King David was in depicting this. We see these promises being fulfilled now in this passage. Isaiah, which was written nearly 700 years before these events. And Isaiah 53 said that he would be numbered with the transgressors. Jesus on the cross is fulfilling Old Testament promises. His crucifixion was not an unfortunate turn of events in the life of a good teacher. What's happening in this text is the purpose for Jesus' life. He came for this. He came to die in the place of his people. He came to provide them his perfection. And he came to restore them to God. This is why Jesus came. These aren't accidental, unfortunate events. It's the entire purpose of his life. Charles Spurgeon put it this way. He said, Jesus has borne the death penalty on our behalf. Behold the wonder. There he hangs upon the cross. This, this is the greatest sight you will ever see. Son of God and son of man, there he hangs, bearing pains unutterable, the just for the unjust to bring us to God. The just for the unjust to bring us to God. The question for us this morning is, have you accepted this? Have you embraced this? Do you believe this? That you are unjust. Jesus is just. That you are sinful. Jesus is perfect. That you need someone to intercede on your behalf. There is no other way. John 14, 6 tells us that. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus is the only way. What happens in this text in this passage, is the entire purpose of Jesus' life. And as I ask the question, have you accepted this? We get to see how the individuals in this passage accepted it. So that fourth point, the people respond. There are three people groups identified in this, uh, these few verses, verses 29 through 32. We see those who passed by. We see the religious leaders. And then we see those who were crucified with him. And each of these people groups have something important to teach us. So those who pass by, look at me in verse 29. And those who pass by derided him, wagging their heads, as Psalm 22 prophesied, saying, Aha, you who destroyed the temple and rebuilt it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. These passers-by, they view Jesus as a false prophet. He said, I, I'll rebuild the temple. I will destroy the temple. In three days, I will rebuild it. And so they're saying, hey, you who said that, you might want to get down because if, if you don't get down, you're going to die. You're not going to be able to fulfill that prophecy. 
So these passersby view him as a false prophecy, prophet. Excuse me, prophet. They say your prophecy was a flop. Therefore, you're false. Say you need to get down if you're going to fulfill this. You don't have much time. The religious leaders, the second group of people, they view Jesus as a couple things. The first one is a deficient priest. You see in verse 31. So also the chief priests with the scribes mocked him to one another, saying, he saved others, he cannot save himself. What you need to understand about priests is that they would intercede on behalf of the people. They would go before God and intercede. And they're saying that if Jesus was a priest, sure, he's able to save others, but at the very least, he should be able to intercede on behalf of himself, right? He's now on a cross. He's about to die. Let's see if he is able to intercede for himself. They view him as a deficient priest. They also view him as a weak king. Verse 32, let the Christ, the king of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. They say, you're this powerful king. Get yourself down so that we may believe. And then we see the third group, those crucified with him. These two robbers, they reflect our response today. One of the robbers believes, one of them does not. Now Mark tells us that they both reviled him. That's, that's true. But Luke tells us that at least one of them had a change of heart. He changed his mind. So we read in Luke 23, one of the criminals who were hanging railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. One of the robbers next to him derided him, reviled him, said, hey, if you really are who you say you are, get yourself down and get us down. He did not believe. The other had a change of heart, and he embraced not only that Jesus was who he said he was, he confessed that you do have a kingdom when you come into your kingdom, remember me, but he also confessed that I deserve this punishment. I'm being crucified, and I deserve it. And it's this man who confesses his sin, and this man who claims Christ to be king, who is brought into paradise. It's this man on the cross is important know it's important to look at him because he is on the cross he's nailed to the cross he literally has no opportunity to do any good works to earn salvation he's nailed to a cross his entire life has led to this he is being justly punished and so being hung there he calls on the name of christ and his faith alone saves him and this morning, regardless of what you have done, regardless of whatever mistakes you've made in your past, be encouraged that you are saved by faith alone, through grace alone, in Christ alone. There is no other way to the Father. And so Jesus is not a false prophet. Jesus is not a deficient priest, and Jesus is not a weak king. In fact, he's the true prophet, priest, and king. And by claiming that, there will always be a response. 
And we see that embodied in these two men on the cross. So as prophet, Jesus demands our trust when he speaks. The question for us is, do we orient our lives around what Jesus has said, around his word? As priest, Jesus is the only one who can bring us into a right relationship with God. Do you believe that? And as king, Jesus demands our allegiance. Is Christ your authority? Good authority, that's a good thing. Authority's not a bad thing. So a few of us went down to D.C. and we got to uh, just get some training. And there was a guy down there by the name of Mark Dever. And he was talking about this idea of authority. And he was talking more so about critical race theory. But he said this. He said, if you buy into the theory that all authority is bad, you are literally Satan's stooge. If you buy into the theory that all authority is bad, you are literally Satan's stooge. God has called us to submit to his good authority. Authority is a gift from God to protect us and to guide us and to lead us into righteousness and to lead us into God's will for our lives. We must submit to it. We must trust Jesus as our authority. We must submit to him as our greatest love, the thing that we want more than anything else that this world has to offer. Thomas Watson an English Puritan preacher and author says this. He says, we are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. We are more sure to arise out of our graves than out of our beds. What he's getting at is there is a day when we are going to face God. The question is, will your sin be paid for by Jesus? Or will, it have, or will you be the one that has to pay for it? See, here's the good news, is that Jesus was crucified, but he didn't stay dead. And on this Resurrection Sunday, we get to be reminded of that all the more. But every Sunday, we're reminded that the tomb is empty. That his payment on the cross was sufficient. If it wasn't sufficient, then he would have stayed dead. But it was sufficient. And he raises, he's raised to remind us that he is the firstfruits. That all who are in him, the perfect one, will also raise. He's gone before us. He's gone before us in his perfect life, and he's given us his perfection. He's gone before us in his death. He's gone before us in his resurrection, which we will receive if we are in him. And he's gone before us in glory. Let's pray. Father, we give you praise. We thank you for loving us. We thank you for the good news of the empty tomb. Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for us. Thank you for paying for our sin. And thank you for not staying in the tomb. Thank you for the resurrection that we get to celebrate today. Not only your resurrection, but the resurrection of all those who are in you. We pray that if anybody has any questions about this, that they would seek you, seek your word, or ask someone around them today. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.